Welcome to Odyssey. Odyssey is a show where we discuss the frontier of crypto's opportunities and challenges in driving real-world impact in the societies of tomorrow. Odyssey is produced thanks to the support of SAFE and Ambar Wallet. SAFE is the most trusted decentralized custody protocol and collective asset management platform on Ethereum and the EVM. Ambar Wallet is an advanced smart wallet that utilizes account abstraction, acting as a gateway to Web3 applications and providing users with secure and effortless management of their digital assets. You'll hear more about them later on in the show. Let's get to it, friends. Welcome to the very first episode of Odyssey. This first episode is with a true crypto OG, Griff Green, who I'm sure many of you are already aware of and familiar with. So I decided to have Griff on as the first guest of the podcast, largely because of his commitment to self-sovereign living, the decentralized values, and really leveraging crypto to make sure that folks have access to freedom and opportunity, irrespective of where they come from. Griff's whole journey, starting with his commitment to a self-sovereign livelihood, where he used to store his value in physical gold and trade and barter instead of relying on the traditional financial system, really speaks to his commitment and underpins the extent to which he fundamentally sees the value that crypto can bring to people around the world. When he first came across Bitcoin, that ethos and philosophy resounded deeply with him, for which he then ventured deeper and deeper into the crypto world, eventually ending up at the DAO, which as many of us are probably aware, got hacked at one point and really sparked this whole conversation around the role of blockchains, whether they should be entirely immutable or whether they represent a social consensus. This is something that Griff and I discuss in this podcast, and I actually think is one of the most interesting aspects of this conversation as well. Griff, for those of you that aren't aware, has worked in a whole range of other projects and started many himself, whether that's Giveth, that's looking to revolutionize the way philanthropy works, the common stack that's building infrastructure to deliver and enhance the state of public goods, to even a Burning Man camp called Camp Decentral. So the guy has had a super diverse and really exciting trajectory and career and definitely a journey worth following. Hope you enjoy this conversation. And without further ado, I present to you Griff Green. Griff, it's awesome to have you on here. Uh, it's a blast. It's good to see you again, Marcus. You too, man. You too, man. So Griff, just to kind of kick off this conversation, give us a really high level overview of who you are and what you're up to in the space. Yeah, I'm a crazy anarchist, crazy crypto anarchist. And uh, watch out, I just, I have a firm belief that we can build things better than governments. And that's what I'm focused on, I, I, especially in places like Latin America, where the governments really suck, honestly. I, I know we can do better. And that's, that's what I'm building for. Uh, you know, it, it looks a little crazy because I actually think the natural replacements for governments are nonprofits. And so I do a lot of nonprofit work, like how do we, how do we fund nonprofits in new innovative ways? And, uh, and that's, that's where I focus all of my energy. Awesome. I'm really excited to sort of dive into that. You're currently in Costa Rica. I'm here in Guatemala. And as you said, governments here are super dysfunctional. And I think a lot of the work that you do is really at the forefront of where crypto can have its biggest impact. And I always say like, you know, my end goal is potentially seeing like, you know, a national government or whatever will replace it, have its entire budget on chain. Right. And so really thinking about these big structural sort of coordinating substrates is, is one and where they intersect with crypto is what I'm super stoked to dive in on here. But before we do all of that and go down this really deep, amazing rabbit hole, let's start with a little bit of kind of your story. Uh, who is Griff Green? How did you get into crypto? And, and how, what's your sort of journey and trajectory been like? Yeah, well, I alluded to it at the beginning. I'm a crazy anarchist. This is just like I was uh, I was bankless, you know, 
uh, as the meme says, early in like by choice, you know, like I'm still a privileged white man. So, you know, it's like, uh, I'm an American and I, I have, I had the opportunity to choose to be bankless and actually store my, store. I was a chemical engineer back in the day, working for the man in a cubicle. Uh, but I was turning all my paychecks into gold and silver, physical gold and silver. And when, uh, when I stopped being a chemical engineer, I, you know, stopped having it need a need for a bank account. And I really just didn't want to be part of the system. And so uh, when Bitcoin came around, I heard about it in 2011, but it was like you had to wire money to Japan, Mt. Gox to like get it. And that seemed like antithetical to me. And but I wasn't technically savvy enough to mine it. So I just let it pass by and Bitcoin was five dollars at the time. So that was a missed opportunity. But I uh, eventually it got a little bit easier and a friend of mine got Coinbase. And so he actually bought uh, three grand of Bitcoin for me and I gave him three grand of gold and silver as a trade. And uh, this was uh, in 2013. Bitcoin was around eighty dollars. And I so uh, I got lucky with that. And in I thought it was just going to be easier than gold and silver. And that's what really got me involved is I wanted something to solve my my idealistic decision to not have a to not participate in the in the global the traditional global financial markets and, and banking system. And I wouldn't I, what's funny is that when I got really when Bitcoin went to a thousand dollars and I got really excited about it. Uh, and it was like, oh my God, yeah, I think I made like $20,000 off it. And at the time I was already a fully nomadic traveling Latin America and Southeast Asia, uh, on a shoestring budget. You know, uh, if the place I would sleep in hostels, it's like, if I have internet and a bed, you know, perfect. Doesn't need hot water, you know, $3 a night, $5 a night. And so when I made 20 grand off Bitcoin, I'm like, I can live off this for two years. Uh, what is this stuff? And the more and more I researched it, I just couldn't believe how value aligned I was with the 2013-2014 mantra of crypto, which was like, let's build something better than governments. And so I got super involved and uh, started, uh, was uh, early participant in the first master's degree program. And actually I was in Guatemala while uh, traveling through um, Central America in, in Lake Atalan, where I gave a presentation about a white paper that I was writing called like for a bicycle sharing economy. And it actually got me my job, my first crypto job at Slocket. So I made this video for my class and uh, about the sharing economy. And when you Googled in 2015, when you Googled sharing economy and blockchain really Bitcoin, because they didn't even, the blockchain word was barely even used. You know, it was all just Bitcoin back then. Ethereum had barely launched. Uh, The only organization that came up was Slocket and the DAO. And so this is, maybe I should speed up through this, but uh, the DAO was like a very pivotal project in the history of Ethereum. And I was the first volunteer hire, you could say, uh, from Slocket. Uh, and it was me and four other people that built the DAO, uh, you know, such a success where it actually raised 14% of all Ether in existence at the time, which uh, was also very historic just in general because it was the largest crowdfund up to that moment that had ever happened, uh, period. $150 million were raised 
while Ether was like $10, basically. So uh, you can only imagine how much Ether that was uh, if it were today's prices. But the problem was Solidity was only eight months old, the programming language that people use to write smart contracts on Ethereum. And there was no such thing as a smart contract audit. You know, that industry didn't exist until, well, three weeks after our launch, we were hacked for $50 million. And me and a team of white hat hackers hacked the rest of the money, long story short. And there's a there's an amazing book about this. There's several books about this. Uh, the best one, in my opinion, is Cryptopians. If you really want like the detailed story uh, by Laura Shin, fantastic, fantastic book. Like the citations are like 10% of the pages. Like that's how like accurate it is. And uh, yeah, so we, as a community, we discovered uh, at, at the time in 2016, immutability was a major meme in the blockchain space. And the DAO basically proved immutability to not be true. The DAO hacker hacked about 30% of the ether that was in the DAO. This was about 4% of all ether in existence. And this became an existential threat for the Ethereum community. So 99% of the Ethereum community agreed to do a fork of the Ethereum protocol that would make an irregular state transition. You could call it just like a, a fake transaction, a transaction that shouldn't be legal and shouldn't work, uh, that just took all the money that was in the DAO and put it in a contract that DAO token holders could then get their money back, right? Uh, it didn't roll back the blockchain. It, it just made this one transaction. And I, I think it's really interesting because, uh, you know, that shouldn't be possible in the, in, at that time, if you look at it from a social standpoint, because the blockchains are supposed to be immutable. You just can't change the rules. But actually, we learned that blockchains are not immutable. They're run on social consensus. And if the entire community decides to change the rules, they can. But at the same time, uh, with blockchain tech, you cannot impose your values on other people unless it's explicit, like in the, in the DAO system or something, you can have losers, but at the blockchain level, you cannot impose your values on other people. So even though 99% of the Ethereum community didn't want this fork, the hacker who clearly didn't like having his money taken, uh, he didn't agree. He did not consent to this irregular state transition. And Bitcoiners who were threatened by the potential success of Ethereum also didn't really like this idea that they could just avoid this huge catastrophe that happened. So they started running the old software that still existed, where the hacker still has the money. And this became like a parallel universe where two blockchains now existed. The old blockchain, without the weird transaction that everyone loves, that takes the money from the hacker, except for the hacker, of course, he didn't like that. So the blockchain that the hacker likes and the blockchain that everyone in Ethereum likes, uh, which is present day Ethereum. And this blockchain is now called Ether Classic. And what's amazing is that these blockchains, the only difference at the time of the hack was this one transaction that was illegal, an illegal transaction, you could say. And then all of a sudden it's like, nope, now there's two blockchains. And everyone who has Ether also has Ether Classic, except for that one transaction. So on the Ether Classic side, the, the hacker still has a bunch of money. And 
on the Ether side, everyone who had Ether also has Ether Classic. And so this is like the weirdest hack that ever happened where everybody won. Everyone involved in Ethereum in any way actually made money because of this hack, except for you could say Slocket. My team, we lost pretty hard. Uh, so there are about five people who got really screwed. Me and, and four of my friends, uh, Lefteris, Christoph Jens, Stefan Twal, and, and, uh, and Simon Jens. So uh, we were the Slocket team. We got screwed <laughs> for sure. But everyone else made money. And even the hacker made money because blockchains are run on social consensus, but you cannot impose your values on other people. Very interesting side note. But a week after the hack, I actually got uh, my diploma in uh, in uh, the first degree ever in blockchains. It was a master's degree from University of Nicosia, and then out of the ashes of the of the DAO wars and and all the crazy hacking hacking like the DAO hack, uh, I started Giveth. Uh, Giveth is like a you know I, I consider it a, a the crypto anarchist dream. It's like what if we could build economies around causes or you know build better something better than nonprofits that could eventually replace governments. But uh, currently today, like that's the vision. Currently today, it's a simple nonprofit platform where you can fundraise with crypto. And out of the out of Giveth, we kind of call it the Giveth Galaxy. A lot of cool projects have kind of spun out. Uh, I found a DAP node in 2017 or 2018 around then around the turn of the year and then uh, common stack came out in 2019 general magic which is like a dev shop came out in 2021 the token engineering commons came out in 2021 uh, there's bright id and now we have praise and pairwise and lots of really interesting projects that are all kind of focused on the same idea how do we build either infrastructure or software that can enable individuals to be their own government to uh, and and even more than just be their own government, be something better than governments, be part of a, a free market system for creating the same type of value that governments provide. And that's that's been my journey. That was like I spent a lot of time talking about the Dow and sped through the stuff that I'm working on now. Uh, but like I that's, this is kind of the path that I took. I think there's, I mean, firstly, I'm, I'm just glad Guatemala played like a, a role in some way along your crypto journey and like really pivotal. So I'm, I'm glad when you told me that story, I was like, that's awesome. And, and Lake Atitlan, which is where I grew up as well. So, um, but, it, but you know, you, you did touch on, on the DAO and a lot of what unfolded there. And, and I think oftentimes, especially here in Latin America, where there's a really big Bitcoin presence, um, the DAO hack is like the number one thing that's always brought up with regards to Look at look at what happened. Like Ethereum isn't immutable, so on and so forth. And while this isn't necessarily the conversation where we can like dive into all of that, I think the point you made up is that blockchains functionally are spaces for social consensus, right? And seeing them as that versus this sort of like rock that shouldn't be touched. And uh, you know there are even instances and in, along Bitcoin's journey where there were reversals of state as well that happened as a consequence of sort of some some uh, malfeasance. And so. You know, I, I do think that there's that's like a whole nother podcast. Um, but I do like I think the point you, that you really touched on, I think is super important is like blockchains, just as anything, right, uh, is a social consensus. And so how do we program that and how do we uh, value and tokenize that, I think is a really interesting conversation. But I, I want to like dive into some of the, the foundational beliefs, because I, I think there'll, there'll be a really fruitful cause of conversation for us, which is why bother building something the government better than governments? 
Safe, previously known as Safe, is a decentralized custody protocol securing $60 billion in assets today. It is establishing a universal standard for secure custody of digital assets, data, and identity. Safe is on a mission to unlock digital ownership for everyone in Web3, including DAOs, enterprise, retail, and institutional users, both through their Safe Core account abstraction infrastructure, and of course, its flagship product, the Safe Wallet, the wallet we all know and love. Start using Safe for building on top of the Safe Core account abstraction stack by visiting safe.global. And now, let's get back to the show. So what are governments, you know, what, what's the structure of governments today um, and why do you believe they're failing us? And, you know, this has been like a, a thesis you've held throughout your life, right? You've been bankless before bankless was even coined a term and but even before, you know, Bitcoin even entered your life. Right. And so where where have you always like wh- what's been the driving thought behind? I want to sort of become a, an anarchist of sorts. And, and why bother doing that? You know, I'm I'm kind of a hippie and like. The, the idea of where do you put your energy or what does what are you contributing to and looking at like, you know, second order, third order, fourth order impact of your labor and your your time. That really gave me some perspective on just like, I don't really want to be part of this, the traditional system. And there was this one very pivotal moment. It's kind of it's kind of crazy, honestly, but I was a huge Seattle Supersonics fan. It's like an NBA basketball team that used to exist. And I was a, uh, I was a founder of the first thing I ever founded or help uh, found was the Save Our Sonics organization to save the basketball team. And we fought for years. I was kind of the general of the fans, the community organizer that would uh, get people to sign petitions and, you know, start chants during the games and stuff. And then uh, we fought for two years and we actually had a court case. Uh, where the Seattle Supersonics uh, signed a deal with the arena, the key arena in Seattle, to uh, continue playing basketball there for 15 years. And it had only been 12 years. We were going to win this court case that would keep the team in town for three more years. And the day the judge was going to give the ruling, I had already planned a party, you know, for success. And instead, there was a press conference with the mayor where he said, ah, the judge doesn't have to make a ruling because I signed a deal where the basketball team can just be, you know, given to Oklahoma City. It's now the Oklahoma City Thunder and uh, they can they can take it and the city gets $60 million. So we're good, judge. Don't even bother talking about it. It was like, are you kidding me? One dude, I was so pissed. I was so pissed that that happened after two years of on the ground grassroots organizing. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. This is probably a pretty lame example of grassroots organizing gone wrong. But like, I was so irate with the entire system that I just wanted to exit. The whole thing was so corrupt. And I I felt like we could build something better. I, I know it's lame. That shows that my white privilege is showing. Okay, I, but I like, mean, I feel like it's it's a great example, right? Of where, as you, like the centralization of power, where this one dude basically, after all of your efforts and all the other, save the Sonics, like, and and you whether you can extrapolate that outwardly across other sort of like levels of society or other geographies or whatever, right? Is like the problem is we have these single points of like centralization that have huge ramifications or varying degrees of ramifications across society. Right. So makes sense why that would lead you down this whole trajectory. (laughs) Yeah. I'm crazy. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I I love it. (laughs) 
Yeah, but but yeah, so so then it's like, well, how you know, I'm I'm also a chemical engineer by training, and I'm a systems engineer specifically, process engineer. I was designing power plants and working on like this really weird biopharmaceutical company called Amgen, genetically engineering Chinese hamster ovary cells to produce human proteins, doing really complex thought-provoking things. And so when I chewed into like what is the core root of this issue, you know, governments are providing value to society. You know, I'm not one of those anarchists that's like, we don't need a government. Unfortunately, we need a government. They, there is a reason that after every revolution, another government crops up, you know, because governments are the number one solution for providing public goods to society, non-excludable goods, goods like the roads and the environmental regulation and proof of identity and uh, public education, public health. There, there's, there's a lot of important things that governments can do that businesses can't do. Businesses are really good at providing excludable value. So like imagine your cell phone or a movie theater. You don't get that for free, you know, like you don't get to enjoy a cell phone just because you, you're a human. You know, you get to enjoy a cell phone if you throw down a few hundred dollars to the right person and he gives you a cell phone. And then you have to pay for internet service and you have to pay for everything. Uh, a movie theater, you know, you have to buy a ticket to the movie theater. But imagine internet at a library or a movie in a park. I, I love this movie in the park example because it's like a movie in a park really brings a lot of value to the community, you know? And in many ways, being in nature and watching a cool movie under the stars, like this can be a much better experience than a movie theater. But the movie theater has a business model and they're open and they're playing lots of movies. How many movies in a park have you been to? You know, and, and the people who are organizing movies in a park, how do they get funding for it? I, uh, I spent a lot of time in Barcelona as well. Uh, and the Catalan culture, they're, they're part of Barcelona is in this autonomous region called Catalonia, which is currently part of Spain, but they voted for independence actually in there. They're, they have a totally different language, holidays, culture, you know, and they, it feels like uh, Catalonia is kind of a colony of Spain, even to this day. And they, they spend a lot of energy. The government of Catalonia provides a lot of uh, public goods. They, they, they throw movies in the park. They throw concerts in a park. The governments provide these things uh, very effectively, especially in Barcelona. Um, if you want to have a grassroots, you know, movie in a park, then someone's got to bring the projector. Someone's got to bring the screen. People are bringing chairs or blankets, you know, and it's, it's a communal effort and mostly run off donations or volunteering. And that's not sustainable. And even governments and taxes is kind of a dead end. You know, government collects taxes and then they just spend the money and they don't, there isn't this like magical wheel of, of growth that exists in the excludable goods realm. Because if someone sells a movie ticket and they make a little bit of profit, they can invest some of that profit into making their movie theater better. Uh, better popcorn, better seats, uh, you can get more people in. And there's like this, this like runaway reaction where it's like, oh, we can provide a better service. Whereas with taxes and donations, there's that runaway reaction isn't there because there's no feedback loops and there's no like incentives to make a better public service. I believe we can change that. I really believe that we can actually, just like there's business models 
in the excludable goods space. In the non-excludable goods, which is roads, fish in a bay, um, you know, open source code, these, these things are non-excludable. Anybody can enjoy them. Uh, and it's very difficult to stop someone from enjoying free roads, you know, <laughs> and, and benefiting from it. So uh, we can build economic models for these systems, just like Bitcoin has, where people issue a token. Instead of like in the business model world, where you have to sell something to a customer and then get some more money than you paid to do the service, and then you can kind of build off of that. Here we can move from this kind of revenue-based model to a supply and demand-based model where you issue a token like Bitcoin does, and then you give it to people who are providing service to the network, to the, to the community. So you can think of the moving the park token, since we I spent a lot of time on that example. And the moving the park token, uh, MIP, movies and parks, uh, MIP token, can be issued to the people who are bringing the projector, to the people who are uh, initializing the whole system, and they can actually get early tokens, you know, you could say, and have an incentive to create more and more demand for that token. And if you can match growth in demand with, uh, it, with the issuance of supply, where you have more demand than you're issuing supply, then you can have an economic system where the people who are receiving the tokens are actually making money, you know? And if you start this really cool movie in the park example, and you say, hey, uh, you know, we're doing movies in the park at Lake, Lake Atalan, Guatemala, you know, different movie in different city uh, every, every week. Uh, and the people with tokens get to decide which movie is played, which city it's played in, and they, they you know, the time and, and all of these things. And there's the people who buy in, who, who get to vote on those things. And then there's also uh, who are buying tokens. And then there's people who are bringing, creating value with their labor and time. And, and uh, they, they also get some issuance free tokens to compensate them for contributing. And they all have the opportunity to grow this outside of just Lake Atalon. Right. So now, like all of a sudden, it becomes a huge thing in Lake Atalon. Movies in the park are huge. People are like, hey, I want to sell, you know, I want to sell things at these moving the park. Well, you have to have tokens, you know. Oh, okay. You know, oh, I want special seats. Oh, you have to have tokens, you know. And all of a sudden you can create kind of like a freemium model based off of this moving the park economy. And then maybe there's others in Antigua, people who come to Lake Atalon on vacation and then they go to Antigua and they're like, hey, like, why aren't there movies in the park here? Throw a movie in the park over here, and they start buying tokens, and they start, and all of a sudden, this this small community group starts to grow, and the to demand for the token grows, and the people who started it actually have the opportunity to make this a global movement for movies in the park, and they're going to be billionaires. This is the next Facebook providing a free service that was relied on donations. This is the that's kind of the the dream of everything that I'm working on. But it's bigger than movies in a park. You know, it's about building roads in Costa Rica. It's about taking care of the homeless. It's about providing value where governments are failing to do it. And the craziest thing is governments will be the first customer. I'm not someone who hates the government. They're just the best solution that we have right now. And it's not good enough. 
It's not good enough. It's not providing the value that we need. I don't hate governments. They're especially not the people working in governments who are true civil servants that are trying to provide value to society. You know, there's all these like politicians that are really powerful and maybe they're corrupt and they have their like, you know, um, they have their issues of power that's incentivizing them. And it's kind of gross sometimes. But most people who work for governments really just want to provide value to their community. You know, they're trying to protect the environment. They're trying to, you know, take care of the homeless or do whatever that they're doing in their job. And they really care. But the systems that they have to use are inefficient and not very impactful and kind of a dead end. So I think we can do better. And if we build systems like I described for movies in a park, we could have competing economies, competing organizations providing public services. And maybe there's like, you know, the movies in the park for kids. And then there's the horror movies in the park. And, and like they're focused on horror movies, you know, and it's like, OK, well, some people really like that. And maybe there's an there's an anime movies in a park. And it's like, wow, wow. You know, and, and you know, different people are investing in these things. Uh, competing to provide free services to the public that will change that would change society as we know it and i think you know i think the argument that oftentimes let's take the mip movie in the park token as the example right is we could build you know certain pockets of value for people that really care about movies in a park like definitely sign me up for that i want to be early on uh, on that token list but the problem is that instead of the MIP token, we're on the USD token, right? And that USD token, what what is it that drives value and why do people want it? And what fundamentally backs it is war and extraction of natural resources and pollution, right? And so um, I guess the question is, how do we build incentive structures and like self-sufficient economies that no longer rely on, you know, this this one token that doesn't necessarily care about public goods, right? Or certain public goods. And let's build tokens that do care about it and, and let's all sort of like invest in them. And, but I think something I've always really noticed with a lot of, you know, and I've seen this with like micro scale projects here in Guatemala that, for example, have tried to launch a token or even other projects in the space is we always default back to the US dollar value. And we're like, oh, it's worth three dollars it's worth sixty thousand dollars it's worth you know four thousand dollars instead of you know so i'm curious like what's this point or what what's the roadmap for us to stop sort of falling back upon this old system is that even what's preferable is that something that we want to do because that that's always the challenge i've seen with a lot of crypto tokens right is at the end of the day we're just building something that still happens to fall within this wider system that is still reliant on extraction and destruction, right, versus regeneration and uplifting human society. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the biggest innovation that cryptocurrency has really allowed is like, it used to be that to start an economy, you needed an army, you know, now you just need to know a couple of nerds. And you can put pump that out in an hour. Honestly, it's so easy to create an economy with the with open source uh, blockchain tech. It's uh, it's almost too easy, honestly, uh, because most of the economies that people create, like if you just do one for one, they kind of suck. You know, there's like a thousand pretty interesting econ economic systems out there. And I'm talking NFTs. I'm talking of the whole thing. You know, there's probably like a, a thousand, maybe three thousand max that are like, wow, that is cool. And that is that has integrity. Uh, and unfortunately, there's hundreds 
100,000 tokens. I know CoinGecko says there's like 12,000 or I don't even, you know, I don't know. You know, that's such an understatement, dude. Yeah. I've made so many tokens that just don't matter. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, it's hundreds of thousands of tokens if you really look at it. And, uh, you know, the US dollar and money is one form of token, you could say, but also stock is another form of tokens. It titles for houses and cars, you could say, are kind of like NFTs. Uh, you, you know, your your ID, your state or national ID card can be, a, can be a token as well. There's a lot of interesting use cases for tokens in blockchain tech, fungible and non-fungible tokens. And so I would, you know, the money use case is really important. And I really love Rye for instance, which is a low volatility currency. Like I'm not a believer in the whole concept of Bitcoin cash, for instance, or using Bitcoin or ether as currency because they're just too volatile in it. And I've done it. You know, I, I paid like forgiveth. We started out paying people in ether and that's great. When the price is going up, they're like, oh, thanks. Wow. My paycheck that I got three weeks ago is actually worth more than it was. <laughs> I love this. And then when the bear market comes and like, oh, you paid me an ether and it went down in price. Uh, 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 you know, yeah. it's like you're forcing people to be speculators for their day to day wages. It doesn't work. The job that the Federal Reserve is doing to provide some price stability for the U.S. dollar, it's needed, you know, but it can be it's programmed away in Rye and you know, the, the unit of account, you know, of a currency is, is one thing. I don't have any problem with people valuing anything in U.S. dollars or in Costa Rica, Colonis, you know, like I don't, that's fine. Unit of account is great. The medium of exchange and store of value are the pieces that are really interesting to me because, you know, if I send someone some ether and it just automatically gets converted into whatever token they want that's that's great because that their store of value is the tokens that they want to hold that they believe in maybe it's even like uh i don't know if you've ever heard of balancer but balancer or your audience balancer is a really cool thing where you can have like these are the tokens i want to hold 50 percent die 20 percent ether uh 10 bitcoin and the other 20 percent is a variety of my favorite tokens you know and whenever someone pays you, you know, your store of value can be this basket of currencies and they send die in, it's automatically creating a, an op arbitrage opportunity for traders to trade against your pool to balance it out. And you actually collect fees on that, which is just wild. Balancer is a really cool base layer protocol. Like, um, and so like if your store, you can choose your store of value and I can choose my medium of exchange with you. And, and then the unit of account can still be dollars, you know, and that's fine. You're not participating you're, by using the metric of dollars. You're not necessarily, you don't necessarily have to participate in the U.S. dollars fiat system. So I'm fine with it. Uh, I think that just on this topic, there's a few other interesting use cases of money. Andreas Santanopoulos, a very famous Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin evangelist from back in the day. He likes to say a fourth use case of money, which is a system of control. And that can be good or bad, right? Like in moving the park token, it's a system of control. The people who have moving the park tokens get to decide the movies. 
This is not a bad thing. No, no, no. But the these incentive mechanisms that currencies create can be bad, right? Like banks have an incentive to loan out money, even sometimes a perverse incentive to loan out money to people who they know they can't pay it back. And eventually they're going to take their house because of it, right? And that's a real issue with the current fiat system. Uh, but you might, you know, Ethereum stakers have an incentive to lock 32 Ether and validate the Ethereum blockchain. And I don't think that there's any problem with that. And yeah, and, and so that's a, an interesting use case of money. And the other one that I really like or that I promote is a destroyer of relationships. <laughs> I think the quantification of value into a, a currency, whether it's US dollar or Ether, it can really destroy relationships, <laughs> you know, and you don't see that. You, you see that all over the place uh, where family members, brothers, cousins, they get into huge fights because like someone owes them some money or whatever, you know, and, and it's like, what, what, you know, the money has this, this, this quantification aspect of money is really interesting to me. And it has a lot of efficiency value, but then it also has a lot of negative consequences that we don't really consider. So I'm I, what I'm most excited about in crypto is, you know, because now you in an hour, you can create any kind of currency you want or any kind of economic system that you want. They don't all have to have money, US dollar type money involved. They can be stock for nonprofits, which I would say moving the park is effectively a stock for a nonprofit. They can be um, mutual credit, like uh, trust lines or uh, mutual credit is a community currency type concept where effectively the currency is created by individuals backed by trust. If I trust you, Marcus, uh, up to $1,000, I know that if I, hey, Marcus, I really need $1,000, like, you know, you'd probably give it to me, like, or, and, and I would do it back to you. And so I actually just create a line of credit between us, a mutual credit. And then you get this network of mutual credit where people can pass, buy, and sell things based off of individual issued IOUs effectively. And like these, uh, that's, or, or maybe, you know, one thing I really want to see, because I also, in all the crypto stuff I do, I also run effectively the crypto Bernie Man camp uh, called Decentral, which I tried to get you there last year, but you're like, I'm an Ethereum soon, fellow. Soon, No, I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping to make that happen really soon. <laughs> I know, I know. But um, and it, it will happen, I'm sure. But uh, there's no money at Burning Man. It's actually like a gift economy. And the gift economy is the economy of the Iroquois nation in, 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 the, in the U.S. and Canada, Northeast. And it's our Northeast U.S. And, you know, it's also the default economy for families. You know, you don't pay for your mother's milk. And generally when your mom cooks you dinner, you don't give her, you don't give her cash. You know, like, you know, she just gives to you. She spent that time giving to you and, you know, you might take out the trash or like give her a foot rub or take, or take care of her when she's old, you know, and there's not, not really, no one's counting and quantifying that. You know, I feel like this cultural aspect of economic systems is not integrated enough into the crypto scene. And I feel like that's what is, that's really the future. And, and, you know, what we do with the common stack is like, how do we build these cultural and technical tools to like support true economic revolution beyond just number go up crypto hyper capitalism let's let's make the programmable money can do capitalism better i actually i'm totally like i'm totally down for capitalism for private goods 
like uh, excludable goods. It works extremely well. Uh, it's an amazing coordination mechanism. I don't think it's the best coordination mechanism for public goods. And I think that we can have interoperable economic systems that are interfacing with each other in various ways to solve the different problems. And this like, we already have multiple economic systems, whether we think about it or not, our, our family gift economy, or like, you know, our friend group where some people just buy each other, you know, buy each other dinners or whatever, you know, have each other over their house. But, you know, you know, there's like these different, you could say economic gifts, there's exchange of value happening. Uh, and like, you know, churches and nonprofits, these, these exchanges of value exist in so many different ways. And we don't really think about it as eco economics, but like with crypto, we can go hyper capitalism, but we can also go hyper public goods or hyper gift economy or hyper mutual aid currency. You know, we can, we can really innovate. Who knows what's going to happen? AI starts getting mixed in. It's things are getting wild at the bleeding edge of the economic economic game. For sure, yeah. I mean, I, I I see it here. You know, even in Guatemala, just how the frontier. And and I think about this often, where I'm like walking down the street. I live in one of the world's most unequal countries, and in my pocket, I have like a, the power to call like this supercomputer with chat GPT, for example. Right. And so just w the, these, as you said, like the bleeding edge of technology is just like pushing us to really have to think really deeply about a lot of these issues. And, you know, at the same time, like Guatemala is also one of the world's most corrupt countries. And there's, there is a direct correlation there with like corruption and inequality. And I've just thought really deeply in a lot of the people I surround myself with. And I think quite a few people that are drawn towards crypto naturally are, are just huge optimists and altruists who are deep thinkers and builders and want to see a better world and also recognize that perhaps just like the base layer is just rotten, right? And so rather than trying to sort of build on this sort of rotten system, well, maybe there's parts of it that we, we can use. And also let's think about, as you said, like systems of power with, with money or different ways of having a relationship with money, with the gift economy, Right. And, and it's cool to see these smaller experiments happen, right? Like all the work you do with Camp Decentral, this uh, Burning Man camp and the wider Burning Man philosophy as well. Right. And I'm personally just really excited about like accelerating more and more adoption, uh, particularly obviously here in Latin America, where we can take people's sort of uh, insights and, and local knowledge and say, hey, how would you think about a movies in the park coin in your local town? And how can we help you make this happen? And what are the sort of roadblocks and challenges? So like curious to maybe step out a bit more. And I know your talk at East Denver was about the meta crisis um, and sort of has to do with a lot of these bigger existential questions as well. So let's walk us through what, what the meta crisis is and where that intersects with public goods and your work as well. If you haven't yet explored the benefits of smart wallets and account abstraction, you should definitely check out Ambire Wallet. It is the wallet you wish you had when you started your crypto journey. Ambire works with all EVM chains out there, the layer twos like Arbitrum, Optimism, Polygon, but also non-Ethereum ecosystems like Avalanche and Phantom. You'll never have to spend your valuable ETH again, because Ambire Wallet lets you pay for gas in stable coins, one of the many perks of smart accounts. The web application of Ambire Wallet offers a number of fiat on-ramps for seamless conversion of fiat currency into crypto. And if you prefer self-custody with a safety net, you can recover a lost Ambire Wallet using an email address and password without giving the Ambire team any control over your funds. 
Ambire Wallet is available on both mobile and web platforms, providing a range of features, including a gas saving mechanism, effortless integration with multiple dApps, transaction batching, and more cool functionalities to enhance your digital asset management experience. Stay tuned as an extension of Ambire Wallet is coming soon, TM, to expand its accessibility even further. Want to get your hands on the Ambire Wallet? Check it out at ambire.com. And now, let's get back to the show. The meta crisis is probably the most important issue of our day because it's l- literally the crisis of crises, you could say, right? It's the, the crisis that every year, every almost month at this point, uh, we are having more and more existential threats that could destroy our civilization. Like if you go back a hundred years, we couldn't destroy humanity. There was like before the nuclear bomb, there was no existential threats to humanity out uh, from uh, other than like from space, a comet hitting us or major, you know, shifts, earthquakes, tsunamis, you know, uh, giant floods. There could be, you know, uh, cosmic radiation. None of those are us. But then in the 40s, we created nuclear weapons. And well, now we can just wipe out all of humanity by making every, you know, square meter of land uh, inhabitable. (laughs) And, or we could, you know, and and then eventually other issues came up, like uh, other environmental issues. Uh, sorry about the beeps. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so uh, these existential threats are happening. New existential threats are being created more and more frequently between climate change, uh, nanobots, uh, you know, you can home labs with CRISPR that could genetically engineer viruses that could spread through and have another pandemic where it's not effectively the flu. Uh, but it's like something way more deadly. Uh, or we can have uh, AI existential threats, of course, are huge. There was a really interesting paper out of Japan maybe a month ago where they're using AI to actually analyze people's brain waves. And they can, someone can look at an image and the AI can actually regenerate the image that they're looking at. That's pretty close. I mean, what is going to happen when we lose privacy over our thoughts? Okay. This is the kind of tech that is getting into the hands of individuals. And there's only really two ways this can go because we suck at the the other issue with uh, effectively what I'm describing is we have exponential technological growth and technological power in the hand of individuals. And alongside that, we are completely incapable of coordinating globally in an effective way. Climate climate change has been on everybody's mind for decades. And what has come of it? Are we really making progress? You know, like it's it's a powerful meme and there's some economic growth in that dimension, but like I haven't really seen it because uh, there's the major players in, in this space are corporations who externalize costs and externalizing risk is a way for corporations to profit more. Uh, AI AI companies are incentivized to move fast and break things, be first to market. And the ones that reduce risk are at a disadvantage compared to the ones who don't. And even uh, China versus the US, like governments. Governments are, of course, the, the, the group that you would expect to rein in the corporations and they're, you know, yeah, you might kill everybody. 
I haven't seen any governments regulate against AI because like, first off, they're slow and don't get it in general, you know, a bunch of old people, come on, they're going to regulate tech. And then at least the leaders. And then on top of it, there's a geopolitical struggle. If the U.S. regulators say, hey, we're going to have a shutdown on crypto, we're going to have a shutdown on AI, you know, the innovators will just go to another country, start paying taxes there. And so there's this geopolitical competition, too, that makes isn't, a, a, you know, a global government. There's the U.N., but really, I mean, the UN, what are they, they're supposed to, like, the, one of the main reasons the UN was created was because of the creation of nuclear weapons. And they did okay at monitoring that. But at the same time, right now, there's a war in Ukraine, and Ukraine has 14 different nuclear power plants, including the largest one in Europe. And there's bombs dropping all around them. I don't, what, is the UN really solving these pro, these global issues? Like, Clearly not. And then there's nonprofits like uh, Extinction Rebellion, for instance, but they don't have the funding to really, I mean, incredible group. And I love Extinction Rebellion. I think I love guerrilla environmentalism. I have a soft spot for it. Okay. But it's not enough. They're not, go they're not impacting the problem really enough. So who else is there? Like there's no one else, man. That's all. That's those are the types of organizations we have. So we don't have the tools to global to coordinate globally around this exponential technological growth. So this is just leading to more and more potential for catastrophic failures, and we're just going to start having them. That's it. And so we're just. And so where yeah. do we, you know, as as we have runaway climate change, technological risk that is so far out of our hands at this point, right? And we have nuclear proliferation just right on, on our doorstep as well, right? And so if no one is coordinating around them, like what can we do about them? Like what, what, where, where does like crypto come in? Where do self-sovereign systems come in? How do we build something that's better than governments to address some of these challenges? Well, what I worry most about is that these catastrophic failures start to happen like COVID. COVID was a catastrophic failure, I would say. Luckily, it wasn't too catastrophic. It's not like it's millions died because of COVID, right? And it seems pretty clear that that came from a, a, a lab in Wuhan, Wuhan, China that was man-made. So uh, this is what I understand. I'm not, a, I'm not like an extensive research on it. So don't Regardless, count on it was coordination failure, right? Like huge coordination, at the end of the day. huge coordination failure. And, and yeah, it's just really scary, man. So, but like, if we're going to have more of these catastrophic failures and the only solution for it is gross. The only solution that I see working at this moment is complete a world government where everyone loses their privacy, panoptic control, centralized dystopia, where there's enough of these catastrophic failures. You saw the, the restriction of, of uh, movement and freedoms that happened during COVID. I mean, I was in Barcelona for the lockdown for 35 days. It was illegal for children to go outside. I mean, so many children were cooped up in apartments that like, I can only imagine domestic violence and the, the crazy, horrible situations that happen because of this loss of freedom. Just, just go outside. Uh, it's scary. And if there's more and more of those, the, the centralized dystopian future of top-down control is just going to you know, get worse and worse. So what we need is we need to figure out how to coordinate global from a decentralized bottom-up approach. 
so that we can solve, so we can have competing organizations trying to address existential risk. And the people who succeed at addressing existential risk get really fucking wealthy. Like, I know that sounds crazy, but that's so important because if you're a, a leading mind, and if you're like just an incredible human that is capable of manifesting whatever they dig, you dig your hands into, you're going to work for corporations and make yourself a lot of money. If you start out in nonprofits and start building value, eventually there's this term altruistic burnout, you know, and, and it, it just doesn't last. It doesn't last. And especially when the systems of creating value for society are completely unsustainable. So, you know, you, we just have to, we have to build systems. And I think the crypto community is especially has this opportunity to build global coordination networks. And what I'd say is it's already happening. If there's a global financial collapse, if most of society, which a lot of people in Latin America already are in this place where they lose faith in fiat currencies, right? Like, I don't think anyone, very few people in Argentina believe in the Argentinian peso. And, and they believe in the U.S. dollar, but already that is fading. Now, if there is a global financial collapse, because it's all based on belief, people have to believe in the value of these fiat currencies for them to work. And if they lose that faith, we'll be okay. We'll actually be okay because we have a network of competing economies in the crypto space that can replace credit card payments, can replace banks, can replace financial uh, innovation. You can get a loan and buy a car. In fact, in Argentina, it's easier to get a loan and buy a car on DeFi than it is through the banks. So, you know, these systems already exist for crypto in a decentralized way, and we can cross one existential threat off, off our list. The global financial collapse will not be a catastrophic failure. It will be a huge failure. It will be painful. You know, but maybe on the order of maybe probably not even as painful as COVID because people everywhere like Bitcoin's already, you know, a, a currency of El Salvador, right? It's legal tender. We're all so we're already there. This is a model that can solve. We can we can address changes. Rye can grow its market cap and it can actually be a thing that people use for day to day transactions and uh, replacing digital payments. Now, how do we take that model and apply it to climate change, apply it to building roads, apply it to ex AI existential threat, where people who innovate in that space can actually make money? I believe we can do it. I, I don't know exactly how to get there, but I'm trying everything. You know, I'm down. And I think a lot of people in this space, in the crypto space, are doing whatever they think will work. Throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. And eventually something will stick and, and we will remove another existential threat. And exponential technological growth can actually help the crypto community advance faster and faster. So I, um, in the Giveth galaxy, this is like common stack, DAP node, Giveth, and all of my projects, we had an internal AI hackathon. We're all figuring out how to use these tools and every, everyone from the secretaries to the, the lead developers, created a project and, you know, learned how to use AI and competed against each other to like, you know, present the best, the coolest project. They all took a day off to learn this new, these new tools. And now everyone in the Giveth is like way more effective at their job because now they have the power of AI at their hands. This is a good thing. You know, AI and these existential threats, they also come with opportunity. 
and exponential technological growth, we maybe we can cure cancer with CRISPR. Who knows? Maybe we can find a virus that we can create that somehow addresses some kind of cancer or some kind of disease. Like these existential threats are the negative side of exponential technological growth. But we have technological coordination systems that we're building. We just need to apply this technology, this the all of these new technologies. Uh, like there's like VitaDAO, which is super cool uh, about how do we you know integrate crypto technology into uh, doing open medicine and what do you call them pharmaceutical discovery, where the DAO's own IP. You know, and like there's really amazing things happening in every sector of the society with crypto, from artists to drug discovery to nonprofits to any anything you say, there's some kind of crypto thing. So we will eventually sort this stuff out. You know, there will be solutions. It's a race, you know, do enough catastrophic failures happen where centralized dystopian control becomes our reality before we can address the issues with cryptocurrency? Or can we have some catastrophic failures and cryptocurrency becomes legitimate enough uh, that it can actually start to address some of these issues and we build better coordination systems than what governments, nonprofits, corporations can provide for these existential threats? I don't know, man. We'll see. Watch the space. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is like a super complex and sort of like really long uh, topic of conversation, but you mentioned the Giveth Galaxy yeah, and no, no, I mean, like th this is like, this is functionally like what I, what I'm really keen to explore, right. Is we are on the advent of just like massive technological advancement. And at the same time, like the world is collapsing around us and it's so easy sometimes to just like sort of numb yourself with Netflix or YouTube or whatever, you know, TikTok, whatever people are like sort of addicted to these days and just be like, okay, these things like don't really matter when in reality, you know, even something like the COVID pandemic um, was something that we knew was coming for a while, but we just didn't sort of have the wherewithal or the intention to think more concisely about how we would respond to it. So just to sort of, I think the last section of this podcast that I'd love to explore with you, you mentioned the Giveth Galaxy. So tell us more about Giveth. I know this is a project you spend a lot of time working on and, and you started as well. And so yeah. You've mentioned coordination failures. You've mentioned lack of funding for projects like Extinction Rebellion. Um, you mentioned programming incentives as well. So, you know, how do you pr fit this all into the Giveth ecosystem? And, and how does that all sort of fit in and, and express itself? And what impact have you seen emerge from that whole sort of adjoining of all these different projects and concepts together? Yeah, you know, it's it, the Giveth Galaxy really was born out of a necessity to target different audiences. So Giveth is focused on nonprofits and bringing nonprofits, the people who are on the ground and really know how to execute on changing the way we uh, provide public goods or, or the, the really know like the, the people who really know what, you know, we need uh, as a society, they're in the nonprofit space, you know, like that's the lowest hanging fruit. They also have the worst uh, like economic system, you could say, where it's functionally all on the financial dimension, especially everyone is sacrificing donors, volunteers, coordinators, people who are, have a job in the nonprofit are rarely paid their market rate. So that's where Giveth comes in and says, Hey, let's meet nonprofits where they are, make one change at a time. Hey, start fundraising with cryptocurrency, 
And we even have like a web three version of tax deductions that without taxes or governments, you know, where when people donate to your project, you get, uh, you get give tokens, donors get give tokens, right? So it's like a, it's like a tax deduction where when you donate to a nonprofit, you get a, you get a discount on your taxes, but without taxes, without governments, without paperwork, donate, you get tokens. That's super cool. And then with that token, we have to generate demand. So with that token, you can rank different projects. Uh, also, one of the cool things that you can't do with tax deductions, but we can do with tokens is, I mean, it's just a better innovation. You know, the tokens, are, you can play with them more than tax deductions. We can uh, actually give create a referral program. So we're just starting up a referral program system where, uh, like on Giveth, when you collect donations, 100% goes to the nonprofit. You know, if you have a, a project and someone donates to you $100, you get $100. There's no one taking a cut. It goes straight to you. It's just a crypto transaction. We don't we don't even have smart contracts in the mix. Okay, It's just a transaction straight from their wallet to yours. And then, you know, give tokens are, are created and given to the donor. But now we can have a referral fee, a referral program where if someone refers the donor to your project, then they can also get some give tokens. So the donor will get less give tokens and the referral person will get more give tokens. And if you're a project, well, you use the referral link, you get donation, you get $100 and you get a portion of their give backs. So now you're getting more money than was donated to you. You know, like it's pretty, pretty wild. And we can build really interesting dynamic systems on top of that. And eventually we want to make the platform so that nonprofits can become DAOs and even be full on their own economic systems. That's going to take time. And this is where we spun up the common stack is really to build out that economic system side of things. So like when in Giveth, the audience is nonprofits. With the common stack, the audience is crypto nerds. Crypto nerds who are altruistic minded, but also like believe in the power of economies to change the world. And so we built our first system was regen economy, purpose-driven economy, impact DAO. There's a lot of words for these things, but we, our first one was called the token engineering commons. And we issued a token that raised $1.5 million in 2021. And since its inception, it has actually kept pace with, uh, with Ethereum. So the price of the small market cap token has been about the same as Ethereum. Like if you put in $1,000 in into the TEC and $1,000 into Ethereum, you have about the same amount of money, you know? But all the TEC has done is, yeah, very yeah. few projects have done that in the last two years, okay? Yeah. Um, but uh, it's like just Bitcoin, basically. And a few other crazy innovation, innovative groups, but like... 95% of tokens have tanked compared to Ethereum. And uh, all this is a small market cap token, two, one to $2 million market cap. People are buying and selling with liquidity. And the craziest thing is all the community has done is give donations, fund grants. That's all it's done is provide value to public goods. Hasn't really done anything else, hasn't built anything else. It's just funding groups that are advancing token engineering. It's actually running a Gitcoin grants round right now. And that, that money did not come from donations or taxes. It was an investment. People who believe in the value of token engineering, of course, I am one, token engineering. By the way, concept of token engineering. Imagine that you're building a bridge. 
You don't YOLO, go to buy some cement at Home Depot and just throw it together. You talk to a civil engineer who's built hundreds of bridges, has software to analyze the bridges and make sure it's safe for people to cross. Even though there might be a crazy windstorm or an earthquake, they build in crazy redundancy, right? Token engineers are the civil engineers of token economies. And if we want to provide public goods in with the crypto space, we need token engineering to do it safely for the public. Luna, Terra, Terra Luna, and UST, the stable token that collapsed and $60 billion was just evaporated because of this collapse. This was not a smart contract bug. This was a token engineering failure. They didn't constrain the economy in ways that could prevent this catastrophic collapse. You know, so like there are and several other examples as well, where it's not projects don't always successful projects don't always fail from a, a smart contract failure like the Dow did. Often they fail because they just weren't designed with enough redundancy and constraints to be operating safely in an adversarial environment. And that's token engineering. That's what token engineering can bring. It can bring the same thing that civil engineering brings to the public infrastructure in the physical realm. And, and token economies are public infrastructure in the digital realm, in, in the financial digital realm. So anyway, the token engineering common is addressing that issue. And you could think of it as like addressing AI existential risk, but for crypto nerds and blockchain existential risk, which there is a lot of. So anyway... Uh, I, the Giveth Galaxy has, you know, all these different groupings that are working together with different audiences. Like there's Praise, which is focused on repu being a reputation system and a reward system. That's kind of like the Burning Man, like gift economy where anyone can praise anybody and it turns into some, uh, some kind of tokens, whether it's NFTs or reputation or however you want to play it. Uh, there's another project called Pairwise, which is about making it easy for people to vote in crypto and signal aggregation uh, effectively. So like we have all sorts of really cool projects that all have different audiences. Uh, we also have General Magic, which is a dev shop that works with various groups across the Impact DAO space, ENS, all the projects in the Giveth Galaxy. And yeah. So there's all these cool projects that are doing their own thing, their own interesting things uh, with different audiences, but they're all trying to push this, like, how do we solve the issue of making it so that people can make a profit by providing value to society? Because like, if I want to leave on one note, because I'm so, thank you for letting me rant, I guess. I'm really sorry about that, but like, I can just. This has been, oh, it's been awesome, man. It's been great to explore all these ideas, but yeah, give us, give us the, the parting thoughts here. Society is exploiting the altruist. When, when governments fail to provide value that society demands, people start nonprofits. And the people who are starting nonprofits, they're taking care of the homeless, they're taking care of the environment, they're taking care of all these issues, and they're not being rewarded fairly for the value they're creating. Society needs nonprofits. They're filling a gap, they're filling demand uh, of society so much that people are willing to sacrifice the money game where the goal is to get the high score. Everyone wants more money. There's no reason to give up money unless you're getting some kind of value in return. But when you are participating in a nonprofit, you give up money, you give up time, you give up labor, you give up expertise, and you get very little in return compared to where you normally would. Society is exploiting the altruists. 
And we need to change that. We need to make it so that if you are successful with your altruism, if you actually solve a problem or make huge progress and make a huge impact on society, you are rewarded fairly. No, you are rewarded abundantly. You're rewarded more than someone who creates the iPhone or creates Facebook or any of this shit. Like you are actually that it is, this is the best industry to be in. And, and ah, okay, I can't be the final thought. I have one more. Governments are spending $35 trillion in, in 2021. Governments spent $35 trillion, collected $25 trillion in taxes to provide public goods to society. And it's just being burned. There is money in public goods. There is demand in public goods. It is one of the largest industries of the world. We just don't see it. We think that nonprofits are, you know, a waste of time, a waste of energy. You're an altruist if you're working for a nonprofit. You're going to be exploited. We have the ability to change that and create a new industry with cryptocurrencies that can address the meta crisis, address every important issue of our day. And people will make money doing this. I promise you. Governments will be the first huge customer because instead of burning $35 trillion, they can invest. They have upside for the first time ever if they actually participate with these cryptocurrency innovative systems that are providing public goods for society. And it's a game changer. And so I still have hope. The meta crisis, you know, it's like I heard a stat that's like over 50 percent of AI engineers think that there's a larger than 15 uh, percent chance of AI destroying the world within like the next decade. I mean, this is really bad odds, man. That's really bad odds. So. We don't honestly have that much time. And that's just one existential threat. So like, I, I, I really think that if you're hanging out in the space, it's a bear market right now. It's a great time to fully dive into crypto. And there's so much opportunity in the public good space and other spaces too. Like, I don't know that there's a more rewarding opportunity out there than to start diving deep into cryptocurrency. Totally agree with you, man. Totally agree. And, you know, part of this podcast as well is to give people sort of an insight and really holistic perspective on like where crypto does have the opportunity to start shifting the needle drastically. And you've been doing that with all the different projects, whether it's Giveth, Common Stack, Token Engineering Commons, all these other projects that you're involved with, starting with the, uh, your, what was it called here? I've got it written down, the basketball team, uh, the Sonic Save, save this. Yeah. So all, everything starting with Save the Sonics uh, all the way through to today, right? And so just want to say, yeah, just huge appreciation and gratitude for all the work that you do, literally like traveling the world, educating people, building public open source infrastructure for all of us in the ecosystem to really like benefit and grow and, and find our way as we look to make the world a better place and look to contribute to public goods and build better than currently existing infrastructure um, to build better coordination substrate. So just huge appreciation for your time, Griff. So just lastly, where can people find you and some of the projects that you're working on? Yeah, Griff Green comes out really well uh, just on Google. So you Google Griff Green, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever, you can find me there. I don't use LinkedIn. I don't even know why I said that, but I'm there. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> Connect with and, Griff Green and, on LinkedIn. You heard yeah. it here. <laughs> Yeah, but no, Twitter. Twitter is the best. Uh, awesome. like, like tag me on Twitter and tell, ask me your questions. I'll engage. Awesome. Awesome, Griff. We'll really appreciate your time, man. And uh, we'll catch you around. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Odyssey. 
And thank you for joining us on our collective journey as we look to explore where crypto has the opportunity to drive real world impact in the societies of tomorrow. If you haven't yet already, make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and also that you've joined our Telegram community, which you'll find below. I'll see you on the next one.